Let's do it. A uh, couple little housekeeping things. Uh, first of all, not as many people this week as last week because um, the NHL playoffs have started and Tampa Bay is playing um, Toronto, the Maple Leafs tonight. So I know a lot of people are at home watching that. <laughs> oh, the Suns are playing tonight too. I guess that might. Have something. Um, I don't follow. Who's that? Yeah, who's that? That's right. Who that? What was that team? Was that? That's the, that's the Saints. Was that the Saints? Yeah. The, did the Houdat stuff? Yeah, and I have no idea what that means. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But it was catchy. Uh, the other thing actually is kind of exciting. Uh, do, do you all know who Zach Hines is? No. The drum The drummer, right. So the guy that's 6'5", so we're, we're into getting these 6'5 guys to play music. You know, anyway, he's, um, he is now a resident with us, pastoral resident, uh, part-time, working in youth, doing music, stuff like that. But uh, he graduates from Phoenix Seminary on Friday, so that's pretty, that's pretty exciting. He's actually an administrator for Cartel. That's his, that's his paying job. Uh, and so he's always telling us about coffee, which is fun. So anyway, yeah, he used to he used to manage the store at uh, Paradise Valley, you know Tatum and Shea, uh, Tatum and Cactus. There's a cartel there, so he was the manager of that, and then they moved him into the home office. And I don't know if you know Jesse, our other drummer, who's been here longer than I have been here. He does sound and occasionally drums. Um, he's actually like the number three person at Cartel. He's been there as long as I've known him. So, anyway, cartel, schmartel, whatever. Yeah. I, I went into cartel twice years ago, and I asked for cream, and they, they looked at me like I had shot their dog. So I said, <laughs> okay, I guess I just won't go, go get coffee here anymore, <laughs> you know? So, talk about coffee snobs, right? So, anyway, Zach says he's trying to reverse that culture at cartel. So, anyway. Um, we're in 1 Corinthians 10, so we're still in that section about, um, you know, issues of conscience and uh, uh, stumbling blocks and what do you do with mature and immature Christians, and Paul just keeps opening up all these doors, but he's about to close them tonight, because that's 8 through 11, 1, so 8 through 10, uh, and then we grab, then we go into um, a big section, uh, 3 uh, issues in the church regarding how people were worshiping in the church. So uh, the issue of hats and hair, which will be next week. I know you're excited about that. That's the first 16 verse, 15 or 16 verses. And then, and then um, uh, the issue of uh, communion, the Lord's Supper. And then we get into uh, spiritual gifts. And that problem that was going on in Corinth, which is really instructive for us today as well. And then he takes all of that into chapter 13, which is the love chapter, where he says, look, this is what needs to moderate everything. So anyway, we're in 10. So we'll start with the first five verses. For I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers were all under the cloud. What cloud is that? Well, read Exodus. Okay. 
They were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. What sea? Where, where is Paul going with this? What is going on? That would be the Red Sea. So now he's talking about uh, the history of God's people, Israel. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the special rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most, most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So, what is all this Old Testament Moses Exodus wilderness stuff? Well, three things. Paul gives the Corinthians a warning based on Israel's history. He, he says essentially something that I say all the time. He says, we've seen this movie before. We know where this is headed. Uh, he's saying, you know, the people of God rejected God and they rejected Moses' leadership and they did that like five minutes after God parted the Red Sea and brought him into the wilderness. Boom. Like, they looked around, well, that was cool, and then they just started complaining. <laughs> you know, people, right? You know, somebody once said, um, ministry would be a great job if it weren't for the people. <laughs> That's a problem because if you don't have the people you don't anyway so but that's that's the way we are you know second of all Paul reminds the Corinthians and us through Israel's history and challenges with human nature he reminds them and us we are fickle we human beings are fickle we rebel against God at the slightest perceived provocation and we always think we know better now, we don't say a lot of those things out loud. We just don't, because we know that that could be problematic. But the way we operate, we think that way. Um, somebody coined the term maybe 20 years ago about how so many uh, Bible-believing, Bible-teaching, evangelical churches are filled with practical atheists. They claim to know Jesus, but the way their life is manifested doesn't demonstrate that they know Jesus at all. Now, that's not to say that we don't have our issues. We all do. I'm talking about people who claim Jesus and then generally stay away from trying to live a life that, that Jesus calls us to. And then number three, reason why he's talking about this stuff, um, Paul is not the only one to use this uh, let's learn the Old Testament scriptures approach because he's just sort of echoing Stephen's sermon from Acts chapter 7. Now, I, I just I encourage you to read the book of Acts because of Colossians, but also because of this. And just because it helps you understand the rest of the New Testament, the history of it is so helpful. Uh, Stephen's sermon is, is essentially a a reiteration of the history of Israel and then he just gets to a point and he looks right at all of these professional Jewish religious leaders and said you stiff-necked stubborn people who killed Jesus <laughs> and then they all said we're gonna kill you and so they stoned him and killed him and Saul was there encouraging everybody and that that would be Paul the Apostle Paul before he changed his name Saul was there too. Well, Paul is now saying the same thing and using the same, sort of the same methodology. He's saying, let's, let's review the history here. 
it's important, it will, it will help you to understand what's coming next. So Paul and Stephen, of course, Paul is explaining from the Torah that just as God allowed the consequences of his people's stubbornness, his people's idolatry, and his people's determination for self-righteousness and self-sufficiency, he allowed the consequences of that to settle on his people, in effect, allowing judgment on his people for their foolish idolatry and what we call meism today. He says, so also you Corinthians will suffer the consequences of your idolatry, meism, and stubbornness and self-righteousness if you are continually lured away from Christ into this arena of, of uh, worship and the, and the deceit of false gods. He's trying to warn them against this. Uh, just a note here that uh, I, I think is interesting. Paul is pointing out that this judgment that appears very harsh throughout Scripture, one of the things he's trying to point out, and if you match this up to what he says in the latter part of Romans chapter 1, what you discover is that the judgment of God is not necessarily God actively judging, but rather taking his hands off and allowing the natural consequences of their sin to be manifest. And we look at that and say that's, that's a, uh, an angry, uh, capricious God that's doing that, not necessarily all the time. Most of the time, all God has to do is just kind of take his hands off and allow the natural consequences of our sin and our disobedience to manifest. Okay? So verses 1 through 4 remind the Corinthians of God's incredible provision and protection, the love and grace that they have received, which, which always and at all times he, he is now saying also with this whole reference to the rock, he's saying it, it's always and at all times, it's always come from Jesus. And that we should never turn away from this provision and protection, this love and this grace for the empty promises of false gods. So some people say, wait, Christ at all times? Yeah, we need to remember that Jesus is a member of the Trinity. He was there at creation. God created through the Spirit and Jesus everything. We, we read Corinthians and we see that Jesus is the creator. Um, he didn't just suddenly appear, manifest as God in 4 BC when he was born. He, he predated that. He was, we talked about this Sunday in Colossians. He was a firstborn, which means uh, in the Greek, it means he existed before time. Okay, so he's always been around. So here's one of the messages Paul is trying to deliver. He, he's trying to say this. Schrader used to say this all the time. False gods never fail to fail. Um, John Piper says one of the problems with false gods is that they always seem to work at first. And, and isn't that interesting how often we judge religion by how well it works for us? And... and the claim of the Christian faith has never been, this is going to work really well for you in the world. Read scripture. It's, it's, there are places where actually the message is quite the opposite. The message of Christianity is, this is the only thing that works in the most important and essential area of your life, and that's in eternity. But if you have the Christian perspective in this world, in this life now, it at least gives you the wisdom to be able to navigate your way through this dark world 
with God with you, if you'll just cling to him and just hang on to him as you navigate your way through this. And then verse 5, don't be like the Israelites in the wilderness. And also implied, and Stephen says it outright in his sermon, he says, don't be like the later Israelites either, who after being given the promised land, after they finally went in, in Joshua, um, they were given the promised land, then they weren't happy with God being their boss, and so they asked for kings, and God gave them kings, and then God gave them incredible military and economic success. He gave them all of this, even in the midst of that, they decided to walk away from God in favor of idol worship, which ultimately brought about the exile to Babylon. So here you go. You could say that for the Israelites, for a few hundred years, their religion was working, but even then they turned away from it. You know, see, see how fickle we are? Really, really fickle. So I want, time, I want to spend some time talking about false gods, since that's kind of the area we, we're in here. And the first thing I want to mention, and then I'm going to list, I'm, I've got this interesting list of false gods. Um, but the first thing I'll mention is what I, I would say, these are the seven, I think, obvious problems with false gods. Seven obvious problems with false gods. By the way, um, I'm a word nerd. I haven't looked into this uh, in terms of uh, etymology, but... Isn't it interesting that obvious and oblivious are such, cl- are such close words? Okay. Just think about the irony there. Anyway, so seven things. Number one, the promises that false gods make never come to fruition. I, I mentioned that. The problem with false gods is that they always seem to work at first. That's John Piper. Here's the second thing. The seduction of false gods is powerful, but also... If you're really looking and discerning, the seduction methods are pretty cheesy. If you really think about it, these seduction methods that the false gods come at us with. Okay, again, here's... A lot of people have said this, but I remember Tom saying it so often. If it sounds too good to be true, what? It probably is. Okay? So I was around in the midst of... And then wrote my... um, Uh, my master's thesis on the rhetorical strategies of the Baptist Foundation of Arizona. I was around for the whole Baptist Foundation of Arizona thing. So they're incredible growth. Uh, They're an investment house for Baptists, for Southern Baptists. And they they were a part of the Arizona Southern Baptist Convention at one time under that umbrella. And um, it was started by, I guess I'll give you a little history so you you understand this. It was started by a guy um, who noticed that so many Southern Baptist pastors would retire with no retirement, nothing. And so he's a pretty smart guy in terms of investing and money management and all that. And so he said, look, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to set up a special fund for Arizona Southern Baptist pastors and staff so that we can make sure they have a little nest egg when they retire. So great, great Great idea, great intentions, okay? Um, and they had some success, and they had some nice annual gains occasionally. And so then his son took over, and his son said, I'm not exactly sure why we're just limiting this to uh, pastors and staff of Southern Baptist uh, churches. Uh, we, have, we have however many thousand Southern Baptist churches in Arizona, 
all the people sitting in the pews of these southern, we, we need to go into the churches and sell our financial services to all the Southern Baptists. Does anybody remember any of this? Okay, so that's what they started doing. So, and, and I studied the rhetorical strategies of the Southern Baptist Convention, and here's what they do. We have affinity. They're, they're, it's called affinity-seeking um, strategies. Uh, we have affinity because we're all Christians, and this is going to be God's work. You're doing God's work by investing with us. Oh, wow, okay. All right. And then, and then another strategy was the fact that they, they had, um, for a couple of years, they had a nice, nice uh, return of between 12 and 15% annually. And so now they're saying we're guaranteeing every year 12 to 15%, never investing in stocks, all of it through real estate. Now, interesting how the United States government often does things that you were never expecting or suspecting and just comes out of left field. But a few of you might remember, in 1986, the uh, United States had a, uh, a revision to the tax code that plunged the entire nation and especially the southwestern United States into a commercial real estate, not recession, but depression. Nearly overnight in 86 and 87, uh, commercial real estate values, especially on raw land, so if you had 20 acres of raw land at the corner of um, Power Road and the 60, okay, uh, like virtually overnight, the value of that plummeted 60%. Okay, and now banks are calling, right? Because everybody's leveraged, right? And I, I remember, I remember um, Schrader talking about it, because Schrader was in the real estate business at the time, and he, he said, this drove me crazy because in the mid-80s, everybody's going around, walking around going, you got to buy real estate, you got to buy real estate. Hey, they're not making any more of this real estate. It's not like there's going to be more supply. You got to get some now. And then here comes the government, new tax law, boom. And everybody's scrambling. And by the way, this is when REITs were invented, real estate investment trusts. That's when REITs were invented to help try to deal with some of this property. So this hit the Baptist Foundation of Arizona. I wasn't planning on talking about any of this, but some of you actually look really interested in this, and it fascinates me. So this hit, and so by this time now, um, on the book, Barry, you'll appreciate this. On the books, uh, the Baptist Foundation is worth, uh, and their investments are worth about a billion dollars on the books, okay? But now they're faced with... Uh, plummeting real estate values and that's all they have is real estate okay and so the cpas are coming into the board at the bfa going we have to write this down right we we, we are required to write this down and the board is saying mm, we have an idea <laughs> okay Let's create a subsidiary of the Baptist Foundation of Arizona and we'll sell this property to this subsidiary of the Baptist Foundation for 10% more than what it's on the books at. That reestablishes a new value, right? But the subsidiary is carrying back all the, that, right? Okay, so then they start doing this pretty soon. No kidding. There's 90 subsidiaries of the Baptist Foundation of Arizona. You know where this is heading, right, Barry? <laughs> okay. Yeah. 
And that's exactly what happened. So um, it was 1999. Um, I can't remember her first name, but uh, her last name was Sterling. Uh, I remember that. It's an easy name to remember, Silver Sterling. Anyway, uh, so I, I remember in 1999, uh, she was uh, uh, an investigative reporter for the Phoenix New Times. Okay? And she broke the story. Okay, because this has been going on now since 87 to 99. So imagine how bad this is now. Okay? And um, so they, they had this inflated value of about a, a billion, 200 million. And really, everything was worth about 500 million. Okay? And so, what happened was a couple of the CPAs went to the board and said, Look, we can't do this anymore. We're breaking the law. This is fraud. And uh, they said, We're out. And then they, and then they went to the Arizona Republic. <laughs> okay? And the Republic said, uh, Nah, we're not going to take on the Baptist church. So they're shopping this around. <laughs> and they find Terry Sterling, that was her name. They finally get this Terry Sterling at the New Times. And of course, it's the New Times. She's like, yeah, I'll write it. <laughs> so she writes this thing and breaks the whole story. You know, and then the editors at, at, um, uh, at Arizona Republic are in trouble. And the publisher's going, why didn't you guys pick this up, right? Okay. So anyway. Um, I ended up, I, inter I got to interview Terry Sterling, and I interviewed a bunch of ex-investors. Uh, I interviewed some of the CPAs, all for my paper, okay? And yes, you're right. Um, so Bill Kratz, who actually is a friend of mine, he went to jail nine years. I visited him once in prison, um, sort of serendipitously. <laughs> and the whole time I'm there with him, I'm like, I wonder if he ever read my thesis, because it was pretty much of an indictment. Anyway, um, my brother, who is a was a prosecuting attorney and later became a uh, judge in the city of Mesa and the then eventually the chief magistrate, he read my thesis and it was before the trial actually took place. And he said, you better hope that Terry Goddard doesn't, because Terry Goddard was the attorney general at the time, he said, you better hope Terry Goddard doesn't get a hold of this because he might call you as a witness. <laughs> I was like, there's two published copies, and they're both sitting on the shelves in Hayden Library at ASU. I don't think Terry Goddard is going to discover this thesis. But anyway, my brother just likes to put a little scare in me every now and then. Anyway, so, so uh, and then the attorney, the in-house counsel, head chief counsel, Jim Grabowski, um, he left town. And I don't think anybody ever figured out where he was or is. Or, so they convicted him in, in absentia. And then there were a few other people that got convicted, too. So how did I get on that? Anyway, yeah, so they're promising 12 to 15% return. And Tom's point was, if they're promising you annualized returns of 12 to 15%, keep your money. <laughs> you know? So anyway, the, the, the seduction of false gods is powerful. But if you're really discerning, you realize that it's a shell game, you know? So one of the things that Schrader used to talk about, too, and I, and I love this illustration, and I mentioned it a little bit maybe, I think, Sunday morning, is um, one of the things we like to do with sin and with false gods is we like to get close to it because we want just a taste without, without any of the, you know, the trouble or the consequences. We really do. We like to play around the edges of it. Well, I'm just going to play around the edges of it, Okay. Uh, ask any guy 
who struggles with internet pornography, and they'll tell you, well, it kind of starts with, I don't know, the Victoria's Secret catalog, and then, and then sites for, and then the next thing you know, you know, you're knee deep. And that's the way dopamine works. You know, gambling, pornography, all of this is just a chemical addiction. All of it. It's a chemical addiction. It's dopamine in your brain creating neural pathways. And it's very, very powerful. And the problem is, is that as the pathway grows for that particular addiction, whatever it is, it can be cocaine, it can be gambling, it can be porn, it can be uh, cigarettes, drinking, whatever it is, food, uh, as, as that neural pathway grows, it takes more and more dopamine to satisfy you. That's that whole idea of how it just progresses, constantly progressing, okay? We try to get a whiff of sin and a whiff of false gods without falling all the way in because we, we think we're smart enough to be able to do that, but we're not. Here's the third thing about false gods. Uh, false gods are rarely bad things, which makes it even harder to, to discern that they're a false god. Let me tell you, if somebody's, if somebody's false god is cocaine, everybody's pretty much in agreement. Yeah, that's bad, okay? But the trouble is that the vast majority of false gods are not necessarily bad things. It's our affection towards things that can be really good and, 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 in fact, are often quite necessary. We have to make money. Wealth is not a bad thing, but if it becomes that which is above the righteousness of Christ in importance, then it becomes a false god. We're the problem, not the idol. We are the problem, not the idol. Our hearts are the problem. And, I'll, and I'm just telling you, I, I do this all the time, but it's just true. I point to what I believe is the most misquoted Bible verse ever. And that is in 1 Timothy, where Timothy says, money is the root of all evil. No, he doesn't say that. <laughs> but that's how it's quoted all the time. You know, the Bible says money is the root of all evil. No, it doesn't. The Bible doesn't say any such thing. It says what? The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. The problem isn't the money. The problem is us and our affection toward it. Okay? So false gods are rarely bad things. Number four, false gods present themselves as rarely demanding sacrifice for them to be beneficial to us. But the reality is that false gods demand that we sacrifice things that are near and dear to us. But it's always too late when we find that out. They are actually more demanding than we realize. Here's number five. False gods demand our obedience and affection, just like God does. But we get mad at God when he asks us for our obedience and affection. I've never heard anybody say of their false god, if this false god really loved me. <laughs> right? But you hear that? People say that all the time about God. Right? If my money really loved me. If my power really loved me. Six, false gods ultimately in the long run end up abusing the worshiper. False gods always end up in the long run abusing the worshiper. This one fascinates me because we live in a culture today that is hypersensitive about abuse. And yet we worship and allow false gods to abuse us all the time and we just take it. In fact, we go back for more. We just keep going back for more. It is amazing how many people, for instance, who are suicidal, depressed, and, and filled with anxiety about social media, truly, research has shown they truly believe that more social media will solve that problem. 
It's just fascinating to me. If I can just get another hit, if I just had more money, if I just had more power, if I just had more status, everything would be fine. When a false god makes promises it will never keep, that's abuse too. When a false god demands that you sacrifice for it, but you get nothing but heartache and disappointment in return, that's abuse. When a false god insists on obedience and affection, but fails to deliver the benefit, that's abuse. And finally, number seven, false gods are just another form of meism. The reason why I say that is because all of us want to create gods in our own image. It's the old Martin Luther line. God created us in his image, and we've been returning the favor ever since. So we're constantly trying to create these gods in our image, and our likeness, thinking that that's the way we'll be able to control and manipulate it. Well, if we can control and manipulate it, that makes us God. That's meism. And ultimately, we ourselves are the idol in the midst of this. So there's all your characteristics. So now, and again, I think this is interesting. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. And since you're here and not watching the Suns game, like some of you should be, <laughs> um, or you're not watching Tampa and, and uh, the Maple Leafs. You know, the Maple Leafs star player grew up here in, in Scottsdale, born and raised in Scottsdale, Austin Matthews. Anyway, um, I put together, based on several different essays from from different resources, a list of the top 15 false gods. Are you ready? ready. Starting with 15. So this is kind of like a Letterman countdown going backwards, but mine's better because there's 15 instead of 10. All right. So number 15 uh, uh, on the false gods' idols, pleasing others. Pleasing others. Number 14, education. Number 13, um, this is kind of a, 13 and 12 are kind of catch-alls, but I, I, I labeled 13 beauty. And so what comes under that is self-care, fitness, image management, those kinds of things. Uh, self-care, fitness, that's, is that bad? No, but we've, made, we've turned it into a god. Um, have I talked to, to there's this thing called the imaginary audience. Everybody, everybody, th th this is true, of, research shows this is true of everybody. It's called the imaginary audience. We're just certain that everybody's watching us. <laughs> They're not. <laughs> it's amazing what I can get away with walking outside of my house looking like. Feeling self-conscious but realizing nobody cares, nobody's watching <laughs> You know, uh, number twelve, again, sort of a catch-all media. So what that means is social status and social media, social capital. Number eleven, comfort and comforting activities. By the way, that's maybe my top personal false god is comfort. Number ten is control. One theologian said this, actually, we're all control freaks. It's just that some of us are better at hiding it than others. Number nine, substances. And that includes food. Uh, number eight, family. Why do you think Jesus had some words about this in the Gospels? Again, is family a bad thing? No. But man, when we elevate it, uh, and by the way, uh, 
I have a, I have a bias on this. I would have put it higher than most other people would have on this list, but only because my wife for years was a high school and club volleyball coach. So maybe, maybe, maybe the correct thing would be children <laughs> as false gods. Every parent thinks their kid is gonna cure cancer. <laughs> and every parent whose kid is involved in sports, every one of them is really bad at math. Because they all think that they, their, their kid should play every minute of every game, but you know, their substitute, there's more people than can be on the court at the same time. <laughs> so the math doesn't work. Uh, number seven, religion. Now, religion is not the same as faith. Faith is about God. Religion is more about us, pride, control, and power. Number six, science. This one is interesting, though, because we have to qualify it as science as I understand it to be. Uh, has anybody seen, um, has anybody been following this stuff with Rachel Levine? Does anybody know who Rachel Levine is? Somebody, no? If you have your phone, look her up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's frightening, isn't it? Okay, she, she, she is the undersecretary, which would be the assistant secretary of health in Biden's cabinet. And she transitioned from being a man to a woman. Okay. And this last week now, did you see the picture of her? Were you looking it up? See the picture? Okay. So anyway, this last week she's been out giving speeches. Um, uh, two things, okay? She first of all has given speeches in academic and school context saying, um, there are four uh, steps or, or phases of transition from male to female or female to male, four of them. And she says all four of them are absolutely reversible, reversible. So if you look at the four phases, you begin to realize that's just not true, okay? Maybe phase one. That's, phase one is uh, a five-year-old begins to question their gender, okay? Give them a beer too while you're at it, but anyway, you know, they begin to question their gender and, and you engage in the conversation and affirm their feelings. Maybe, maybe that's reversible. But then phase two is puberty blockers, okay? So a girl at 12 says, I'm not a girl, I'm a boy, so I'm gonna go on puberty blockers for three years, okay? Well, right there, that, that thing falls apart completely because, okay, so she's on puberty blockers until she's 15, then she decides, no, nah, I'm really a girl. I was wrong, okay? You, you don't go back to 12 years old and start over. It's not reversible. And then, of course, the last thing is, is you know, cutting off breasts and attaching penises and all that stuff, okay? It, 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 it's not reversible. It's just not reversible. So, but she's, this is the science. It's all reversible. But that science, is she defines it, okay? Here's, here's the second thing she's saying, and she's saying this unapologetically. Every pediatrician, child psychologist, and child psychiatrist has agreed that affirmation of this is positive and good and we must do it, every single one of them. I personally know pediatricians who are going, 
this is stupid. There's no such thing as every one of them saying that this is okay. Okay, but this is... This has become a god in our culture. And this is what happens when something becomes a, an idol in culture. We just throw reason out the window. Okay? Number five is politics. Uh, political ideology, philosophy, platforms, and candidates. Number four, one three-letter word. Anybody want to guess what it is? Begins with S? <laughs> Sex. <laughs> Sex, all right. It begins with S and ends with X. Oh, six, the number six. Yeah, Satan. Okay. Number three, identities, in quotes, identities, whatever your identity thing is. Number two is money and wealth, and number one is self, meism. Okay. So, by the way, if, as long as I'm doing these lists and, and you know, being really judgmental and all that stuff anyway, I might as well just give you mine. So, yeah, comfort is one of them. Um, I, I tell you, I struggle sometimes with um, my worship of the upper Midwest, especially central Wisconsin. But it's an interesting worship because I don't feel that way in J January, okay? Uh, the Chicago Blackhawks, who have been a very disappointing idol lately. <laughs> they have not delivered on fulfilling me at all. And, and, uh, and you know, the, the musical group Heart. I, I just really struggle to listen to anything but Heart. I don't know what it is, but, but I will say this. Nancy, who's the acoustic guitar player, really should just stick to singing and not talking. Because I've heard her talk at concerts and it's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> okay. So, by the way, uh, so th th this might get me in trouble, but that's all right. I'm already in trouble. Uh, Sunday morning, our music Sunday was, again, just terrific. So Malia, Kayla, they're all, anyway. So Malia, they're rehearsing. This is like at 7.30. They're rehearsing the song, and Malia's just killing it, you know. And they get to the end of the song, and, and everybody who's in the, uh, who's just sitting watching the rehearsal, we, we, we started clapping, and I just yelled, suck it, heart! <laughs> And Tyler Thompson was like, we have a breakthrough. <laughs> you know. So anyway, I hope that was helpful. If not, anyway, onward. Okay, wow. Not going to get too deep into chapter 10 tonight. So 6 through 13. Now, these things took place, the Exodus, as examples for us that we might des desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have, has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So I love the Old Testament and I get excited when we get to teach the Old Testament. I, 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 listen, I'm not just Old Testament, but I, I, am, I am excited when we get to teach it. 
Uh, we went through, three or four years ago, we went through uh, Exodus in 16 weeks. I don't know if any of you remember that. Uh, the only reason we got that through is because um, I went to Luke, who was in charge of the, the preaching calendar at the time, and I said, if I can give you, the problem with doing Exodus is that it takes 40 or 50 weeks to do it. If I can give you an outline where we could do it in 16 weeks, would you consider it? And he said, yes. So I put together an outline, and he said, okay, we'll do it. Um, this summer, I think some of you know, after we're done with Colossians, uh, interesting, on, on July 4th, Sunday, July 4th is when we're starting this, or it's July 4th weekend, um, we're starting a series called um, We Want a King, and it's going to be six weeks on Solomon, no, six weeks on Saul, five weeks on, uh, 11 weeks on David, and six weeks on um, Solomon. And then that'll take us up to, um, that'll take us to Advent. And, and so we're going to be in the Samuels during that time. I think it'll be a lot of fun. But one of the reasons I love studying the Old Testament is because you can understand the New Testament and the Messianic theology so much better if you know the Old Testament. It's just easier to read the New Testament and understand it if you have some concept and understanding of what's going on in the Old Testament. And Paul even says right here, you should know this stuff. Because this is an example for us today, if you know um, Exodus. And, he, and then he gives four admonishments. He says, uh, don't worship false gods, number one. Number two, he says sexual immorality is forbidden. Um, it's funny, sometimes I get the word, words uh, immorality and immortality mixed up, and so I say sexual immortality, which is ironic because there's a lot of people in our culture today who are striving for sexual immortality which is, of course, impossible. Anyway, uh, number three, he says, do not test, tempt, or incite God. That's verse nine. And then number four, no grumbling. No grumbling. That's, that's not necessarily a new thought for Paul. Philippians chapter two, verses 14 through 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain. And then verse 11, the judgment of them in Exodus still applies to us today. God is still God. He has every right to take his hands off or even to direct the judgment. Either one. doesn't matter. He's God. And then verse 12, far too many Christians then and now believe that they have it all figured out and can stand on their own reason. And Paul says, uh, no, not true. And then that verse 13, of course, is interesting. No temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is a hard verse for some of us, if not all of us. Because we have all been tempted in a way that we felt like there was no way I was going to be able to overcome that. Isn't that right? We've all committed sin. And in the wake of that commission of that sin we've said nothing I could have ever done and and that's just one of the lies that we tell ourselves it's not that it's easy it's just it's a lie that we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel better about the sin and to rationalize it 
The truth is, uh, here's how Luther described it. I don't know if you've heard this before. Here's how Luther described it. In the garden, Adam and Eve were not sinful. Their nature was not sinful, but they were able to sin if, if the opportunity presented itself. And of course, the opportunity presented itself. From Genesis 3 until when Jesus came, um, everyone, everyone born into this world was sinful and utterly unable to keep from sinning. Then once Jesus died and was resurrected, from that time until he comes again, Revelation 21 and 22, we are sinful in our nature. We are sinful, but we are capable of not sinning. The reason we are capable of not sinning is because Christ has come and he's claimed victory over Satan, sin, and death, and he's filled us with the Holy Spirit. We have the ability to say no. And then once we get into the uh, New Jerusalem, that's when it will be we are no longer sinful and we are not capable of sinning. And that's the way it'll be for eternity. Okay? But we're in that third chapter right now. So we are capable of not sinning. And, and if we would look as hard in the wake of our sin, if we would look at as, as hard at how we could have gotten out of it, how we could have maybe prayed instead of rationalizing, whatever it is, not gone there, whatever that is, okay? Um, I think we could also find justification for the fact that we could have kept from sinning. So, I think we'll... And we'll stop there. This next section is going to take a few minutes, so it will be too late by then. We're, well, actually, it's 7.45, so we'll stop there. So, I will see you next time. And let me pray, and then we'll see you Sunday. Father God, uh, thank you for your word and its truth, and just thank you that You give us really solid instruction about these false gods and idols and our tendency toward lifting things up above the righteousness of Christ and help us to quit doing that. Help us to stop doing that. Help us to be discerning about those things so that we might have the power and be filled with your spirit to keep from doing that. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.